Well, good morning once again. My name is Chris Lejeune, and I serve on staff here at Redeemer Church. And we know that summer is always a time of transition. We have lots of people leaving, lots of people arriving for the first time. So if it is your first time, welcome. We would love to encourage you to fill out the the visitor page on the back of the bulletin. Uh, I know Glenn mentioned earlier, but I see there's a lot more people who have come since then. So make sure you fill that out. If you don't have one, you can get one at the connections table. Hand it in there and just let us get to know you. We'd love to share more about who we are as a church, what we're all about, and what it is that we believe. Now, I have the privilege of being able to bring you God's word this morning. And before I do that, let's go to him one more time in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we know that you are sufficient. You are the one who is worthy of all praise and all glory. We pray that as we approach your word now, Lord, that you would give us spirits of humility and that through this time, you would be glorified. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, normally when I get up to preach, I would usually have some sort of witty intro, uh, a little anecdote that's going to get you interested in what I'm about to say. That's not going to happen this morning. The more time I spent studying this passage and the more time that I prepared, the more I just wanted us to just dive straight into God's word and see the majesty and the glory and the power that is in Christ. So, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 4. And as we do that, just to give you a little bit of background, um, this letter was most likely written somewhere between 60 and 70 AD, written to, as the name suggests, Jewish Christians, the Hebrews, and... One of the funny things is we don't actually know who wrote the book. A lot of speculation. It may have been Paul, possibly one of his associates, Apollos or, or Barnabas. Uh, as the, the second century theologian Origen said, as far as who wrote the book, only God knows. So we're not going to try to find that out today. But we are going to look at who this Christ is. So please follow along with me either in your bulletin, in your Bibles, or up on the screens. Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 1 to 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in his last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. As we consider the text this morning, we're going to be looking at three points that will serve as our outline. So if you're taking notes, the three points we're looking at are contrasting revelations, a glorious description of Christ, And the supremacy of Christ. So contrasting revelations, a glorious description of Christ, and the supremacy of Christ. Let's look at that first point, contrasting revelations. 
The author of Hebrews opens this letter in a rather unique way. There's no introduction or prayer of thanksgiving, something that you know we're used to seeing throughout Paul's writings. Rather, he just dives straight into what he wants to say. This has led some to think that this might actually be a sermon that's being, being read aloud. Look with me again at those opening verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So in that first, those first two verses, we see the author giving us a couple of contrasts. I wonder if you notice that. We have long ago, so long ago and last, last days. The author is contrasting when God has spoken. The phrase long ago would be referring to the times throughout the Old Testament that God had spoken to and interacted with his people. That's contrasted with these last days, which simply refers to the time since Christ's arrival. The next contrast is who God has spoken to. So we see there that God spoke to our fathers and that he has spoken to us. Highlighting the fact that whereas before, they would have only, uh, as, it was, as history went on, people would have only had parchments and... Uh, stories passed down from generation to generation of God actually speaking to his people. Whereas now, the author highlights that Christ is speaking directly to us, to them, to these recipients. And then you have the third contrast, where the author describes God's agent by which he speaks. So previously it was by the prophets, and now by his son. We see how God speaking to his people has become far more personal because it is now his son who is speaking. Think of it like this. If I got some incredible news that I wanted to share with my wife, I wouldn't go and send someone else to go and do it for me. No, if I wanted to share something fantastic that happened with the day, I'd go up to her and do it face to face so we could share in that excitement together. If I did another way, it would just be impersonal. Now, that's not to say that God was impersonable in any way, impersonal. Um, but when he spoke in the Old Testament. But it does remind us that this, what's happening now carries with it some significance. And there's, there's one more slightly subtle contrast. I wonder if you, if you saw that. Back in the phrase, many times and in many ways. Again, we can contrast that with the phrase, by his son. Suggesting that in the past, there were many ways and times that God spoke to his people, like Moses, like Joshua, or or the prophets. But now at this point, in these last days, he is speaking to his people through his son. Now it is important for us to remember who these first century listeners were. It's likely that they would have known who this letter was from. And secondly, being Jewish they would have been well acquainted with the Old Testament, with its writings, and with the prophecies of old. So when the writer begins by saying that God spoke to our fathers, they would not only have in mind the patriarchs, but all of God's chosen people from the Old Testament. As they heard the phrase, by the prophets, they would immediately have in mind the things that God spoke to his people through the prophets. Like Isaiah, who who warned God's people that the sin of Judah would bring about God's judgment. But he also spoke about a servant, a man of sorrows who would be pierced for our transgressions, 
accomplishing God's purposes of salvation. Or Jeremiah, whose task was to declare the coming judgments of God. But was the same prophet who spoke of a future day when God would write his law on human hearts. A day when God said of his people, they shall know me and I will remember their sin no more. Or the prophet Ezekiel, who prophesied hope and reassurance for the people of Judah, people who had lost God's covenant, they had lost the temple in Jerusalem, seemingly hopeless. Again, we get a vision of, from, from Ezekiel of, uh, in chapter 37, the valley of dry bones, this, this picture of God's ability, though, to renew his people. So amidst the contrast that we're seeing, we are reminded that God does, in fact, speak to his people. Now, we aren't to believe that somehow these messages contradict each other. Uh, far from it. They're not, they're not at odds from each other. The message of the prophets and the ways that God spoke to his people pointed to a future fulfillment that would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. If you quickly turn your your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1, look there at verse 14. Now after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. So after centuries and centuries of practicing the sacrificial system, of reading the prophets and looking forward to a day when God would establish his kingdom, you have Jesus arriving and saying that that time is now. Everything the prophets spoke about is now being fulfilled. Repent and believe. Now, this wasn't just someone making up stories. You know, someone who came with a good idea of, hey, let's you know, talk about this. No, there were people still alive at this time who would have been able to recount their eyewitness accounts. John, the apostle that, God, that Jesus loved, was still alive at this time. Uh, Peter and Paul possibly also were alive. They would have been able to give eyewitness accounts of what they saw, what they experienced. But the question that may still remain why would Christ be the one who fulfills these prophecies? Why should we not be looking to a later messenger or a better message? Something that's seemingly more relevant for us today. And that leads us to our next point. A glorious description of Christ. So the writer has been contrasting the son and the prophets and ends off the first part by telling his listeners that God has spoken to us by his son. Then in the same sentence, it's almost as as if he's saying, yep, God has spoken to you by his son. Let me just remind you who that is. So look again there at verses 2 and 3. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe 
by the word of his power. Now one thing that is clear in this description, this is unlike any other prophet that we've seen. This is not just another human that's seemingly called by God to deliver a message. No one else has ever been described in this way. This is the, the first time we see this description is as it's describing the Son. The one who has been appointed the heir of all things. A phrase that alludes to Psalm chapter 2 verse 8 where the psalmist writes, I will make your nations a heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And this is something that the author of Hebrews uh, draws out more and more in the following verses of this book. The author is showing his listeners this fulfillment. Remember that baptism of Jesus? Remember God declaring that this is my beloved son? He is the heir. But he doesn't just stop there. Immediately following the mention of the son as heir, the author of Hebrews describes the significance in more detail of the one that is God's perfect messenger. These descriptions bring out his greatness and show why the revelation given in him is the greatest and highest which God has given. So firstly, we see that this is the one through whom God created the world. In the beginning, when God said, let there be light, it was through the word, through Jesus, that he created everything. Christ is the agent of creation, which means that he has been there since the beginning, not as a creation, but eternally as the second part of the Trinity, as the Son. These hearers are being reminded that the very one through him everything was created is the one who's delivering this message, the one who God is speaking through. Secondly, we see that he is the radiance of the glory of God. Simply put, Christ perfectly reflects the majesty and glory of God. To first century listeners, this would have been something that really stood out for them. For anyone to associate or compare themselves to God or say that they were somehow like God, was utter blasphemy. This is one of the things that got the Pharisees so up in arms. They they say that Jesus was blaspheming. If you think about this term, the glory of God, it's something that Glenn reminded us of this morning when he read the passage from Isaiah. Remember in chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. God is clear that he does not share his glory with anyone. And yet this messenger, Christ, can say, I and the Father are one? Anyone who sees me has seen the Father? The author is making clear reference to the deity of Christ. He is showing how Christ is fully God. So in one sense, the Pharisees were right in calling out blasphemy. The problem was they were calling out the one person who really couldn't blaspheme because he was God. So again, we see, if you want to see uh, God look at the Son, we get those words from uh, John chapter 14. Remember, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
you start to get an idea of why this particular revelation carried with it so much weight. This is God himself in the flesh who is delivering it to you. Be encouraged. The author also goes on to tell us that Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. Or to put it another way, the exact impression of God. So Christ is the exact same in nature and the exact same in character as God. Now if we think about that, in order for someone to be the exact same character or have the exact same nature of someone, they would have to be that person. You know, as parents, we may see glimpses of our characters or natures in our children. So when I see my daughter doing something that just is completely dangerous and stupid, I recognize that that's part of my character in her. It's showing itself. When she does something more level-headed, that's clearly my wife's character coming through. (laughs) But it's not what defines her. She is ultimately her own person. She ultimately has her own character. But the point that is being made here is that Christ doesn't just show glimpses of God's character, glimpses of his good nature. No, he is exactly the same as God. You want a final agent to bring you a message? There it is. God himself. The third thing that the author tells us is that he is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. So not only is he everything we've just looked at in terms of character, in terms of the glory of God, but even now he is active as the one who is upholding the universe. Every last thing, from the tiniest atom to the vastest far-reaching galaxy, Christ is upholding it. And if he were to cease doing so, it would cease to exist. Can you imagine the comfort that this must have been for those receiving this message as they get the description of who it is that they're being told about, who it is that they are putting their trust and faith in as they prepare to face trials? I wonder as you sit here this morning and you think about this, what trials are you facing? Are you faced with a loved one who is battling cancer? Or maybe it's the uncertainty of work. You've just lost your job. You don't know what's going to happen next. Perhaps you and your spouse are at the point of divorce. And the only reason why you're sitting here this morning is because you couldn't stand to actually be at home. Your trials could be financial. They could be physical. You may even be at the point where you feel so overwhelmed that you just want to end it all together. Friends, we are not without hope. Don't you see who this is? Who the author is pointing us to? This is Christ. The one through whom God created the world. This is the exact representation of God. The radiance of his glory. And the one who even now upholds the universe by the word of his power. These trials you are facing no matter how desperate they may seem to be, are nothing for him. 
they're not too big for him. You are not without hope. Be encouraged. At the same time, this may not be you. You may not be going through trials. Things may be going really well for you at the moment. And praise God for that. But that doesn't mean that you haven't faced trials. And it certainly doesn't mean that you will not ever face trials. But I pray that this would serve as an encouragement to you as well. That you would not forget who your hope is to be in when that cloud of darkness comes over you. But it doesn't end just there. Everything we've spoken about so far doesn't end there. The news actually gets better for us. The author seeks to encourage his readers even further. He reminds them that, and us that he's not just des- describing something incredible in terms of who Christ is, but that Christ has done something extremely significant. That everything we have spoken up now kind of falls in this framework of what it is that Christ came to do. Christ didn't come just to deliver a message. He came to complete a mission. And that leads us to our third and final point, the supremacy of Christ. Look at the second part of verse 3. After making purifications for sin, purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Everything that the Old Testament pointed towards was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Most importantly, how we are reconciled to God. All those sacrifices, all those prophecies, the law, all pointing to our greatest need, and that is to be made right with our Maker. Contrary to what other religions in the world says, as Christians, we believe that when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, it had dire consequences. Consequences that affect each and every single one of us sitting here this morning. In that moment, we were separated from God because of sin. Every person who, ever, who has ever lived and every person who ever will live is born into sin, has a completely sinful nature. Paul reminds us in Romans that no one does good, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our greatest need above food, above shelter, above family, above health, above anything is to be reconciled to God. We cannot achieve this reconciliation on our own. The Bible is clear that we are dead in our transgressions. But as we've seen, we are not hopeless. God himself has done something about it. And it's not by accident that the author uses the phrase, made purification for sins. These first century readers would have been well aware of Jewish tradition. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when the high priest would go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was, and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people to make purification for their sins or to atone for their sins. This happened once a year and had to be repeated on an ongoing basis because ultimately the blood of animals could never fully cover the sins of man. But these ongoing sacrifices were pointing forward, pointing towards something. A day when sacrifices 
would no longer need to be made. There had to be a perfect sacrifice, one who was blameless and completely without sin. And that's exactly who Christ was for us. The only one to ever live a sinless life from beginning to end, living in full obedience to the law of God and loving him perfectly. Fulfilling the role of high priest, he then offered himself up as a sacrifice on our behalf, taking on the full wrath and punishment of God that each and every one of us here deserve. We deserve it for our rebellion. Then he died the death that we deserve because of our rejection of God's ways. With every blow of the hammer, driving those nails into his hands and feet, was bringing him closer and closer to his ultimate purpose. Then as he was raised up, crying his final breath, it is finished. The curtain in the temple torn in two, making access for us to God. But it doesn't end there. After paying the penalty for our sins, he was raised up on the third day, showing that his sacrifice was wholly acceptable to God, a conquering death, and is now seated at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. Friends, our only hope to be reconciled is to repent and put our faith and trust in what Christ has done. Our hope lies nowhere else but right there at what was accomplished on the cross. O vile and wretched sinner, as wicked as your sin is, as shameful as it shows itself to be when convicted, remember, Christ has taken that vile sin upon himself and paid the price for you and has now washed you clean. Repent, believe, rejoice, give praise, and go and sin no more. One of the most exciting things as you read through the book of Hebrews is that it shows us this deity of Christ, how God is fully, how Jesus is fully God, how he was able to accomplish these things, why he is the perfect sacrifice, and why he is the great high priest. And ultimately, this is what the whole Bible talks about. Showing how we as a people have rejected God and how he has made a way for us to be reconciled to himself through his son. If you're visiting with us today and this is all brand new to you, I just want to take this opportunity and welcome you. There are so many other things that you could be doing on a Friday, so to have you here is not by accident. We believe that God has placed you here on purpose, so pay attention. But one thing I do want to say is that you cannot neglect the claims that are being made here this morning. Christ is the only hope that we have of being reconciled to God. And we know his claims are true not only because of the multitudes of witnesses that saw what he did and saw him after he, raised from, he was raised from the dead, but because throughout history, Christ is the only one who made the claims that he did and has been able to back them up. This is the core message of Christianity, 
This is why Christ said, repent and believe. And given who he is, how the author has described him for us, this is why we believe that there is no other revelation to come. It stops right here with Jesus. I mean, you could not ask for a more perfect revelation because it was coming from the one who was the exact true nature of God. This is why we don't run around today looking for something more relevant or something that you know, ties in with what society believes, ties in with the, the worldview of today. No. This is why we would say that any belief system that claims to be a revelation after Christ is false. Why would God need to give another revelation, especially through a sinful, corrupt human being, when he has given us the final revelation through his Son and has made a way for us to be reconciled to him? Christ said, it is finished. He didn't say, it is finished, and then look ahead. No, it is done. As we come to the end of this passage, the author throws out one more reminder just of who this Christ is. Let's read verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This last part here reminds us that Christ is superior to angels. Angels were objects of much speculation in first century Judaism. Certainly they were known to appear in human form. Minister, uh, to minister before the throne of God, to guide and protect humans, and to have revealed the Mosaic law. And yet Jesus, again, is said to be superior to them because of his relationship to the Father, because of who he is, because he and the Father are one, because he is the radiance and the glory and the exact imprint of his nature. In the modern day, today we just look around, this, there's a, this new age spirituality that seems to categorize so much of the world's belief systems. You know, we are often confronted with images that seem to glorify angels. So you can go and have angel cards read for you, or you can, uh, you know, go to someone and they will help you find your spirit guide, or you can go to an artist who can claim to paint your guardian angel for you. All these things that are trying to make much of a creation rather than looking to the creator. And we imagine uh, angels with these wings and flowing robes and these faces aglow with light. Whereas we have Jesus who humbled himself by taking on the form of a man. And yet his glory surpasses theirs to an extent, to an extent that we simply cannot fathom this side of eternity. There is no other name. There is no other place where our hope lies but in Jesus. We've gone through this morning and seen who it is that our hope is to be in. At the beginning of the sermon, I said to you that I wanted us to dive in and see the majesty and power of Christ. I pray that this will be true for you as you leave here this morning. That this will be something that you consider in a few moments as we, we, we partake in communion. 
as you meet with each other during the week, as you do your quiet time, as you lead your family and family devotionals, even as you despair or rejoice, that ultimately this Christ who we have considered this morning is the one that your hope is in and nowhere else. To that end, let's pray. And Father God, you have revealed yourself. You have made yourself known through your Son. The Son who lived a perfect life and offered himself up as a sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, may the majesty and the glory that is in Christ fuel our hearts to worship and praise you, knowing that you have taken care of our greatest need. Father, we thank you, we praise you, and we do all of this in the beautiful, mighty name of Jesus. Amen.